you're new to Sovereign Grace, first of all, welcome. My name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here. We will be in God's Word, of course, this morning. Uh, we'll be in Psalm 57. You can begin to turn there. Psalm 57 is where we are. As we continue to make our way through the Psalter and learn from David's challenges and encouragements, we have a wonderful psalm this morning as we do every morning when we're in the Psalms. But Psalm 57, verses 1 through 11. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the living word of God. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a mictim of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are glorious, righteous. You are God most high. And you are our God. So, Lord, we seek you earnestly. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Father, we ask that as we get a glimpse of who you are today in your sanctuary, as we behold your power and glory from your word, help us, Lord, to see that your steadfast love displayed perfectly in the finished work of Christ is better than life. And Lord, when we behold your glory in the face of Jesus, give us grateful hearts that we might praise you with our lips and bless your name as long as we live. We pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Well, I wonder if anyone here has ever spent the night in a tree. Guessing no. (laughs) I know many of us love to camp. And kids, I know you love tree houses, but I'm not talking about spending the night in a nice comfy tree house or spending the night in a sleeping bag in kind of a rustic 
campground or something like that. I'm talking about sitting on a branch way up high in a tree all night long. And not just that, trying not to fall for one thing and trying to be as silent as possible because the people on the ground under you are hunting you. They're trying to kill you and doing everything they can to find you. Well, that was the experience of one of my missionary heroes, John G. Payton. If you don't know about Peyton, he was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands. What we know is today is Vanuatu. He was there for more than 40 years. And when he arrived in 1858, the people were terrible. They were warlords. They were cannibals. They were horrible to everybody, especially his family. They threatened his family constantly. He didn't know who he could trust. And he had a really uneasy relationship, kind of alliance with one of the village chiefs. He lied to him on a number of occasions, so he never really knew if he could trust him. And then one night, this chief comes to Peyton and says, there are hundreds of savages, really natives, coming to you to kill you right now. The only way you're going to be safe is if you climb up in this chestnut tree and you just hide there for the rest of the night. Like I said, Peyton didn't know if he could trust this guy or what, so he reluctantly climbed up the tree and he was in the tree all night long. And in his autobiography, listen to what he says about that tree. He said, being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, that's the chief who told them to get in the tree. I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there passed all before me as if they were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets, the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I would not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Incredible story. In the midst of muskets firing, savages yelling, people hunting him down, he said he never felt safer. Ever felt closer to Jesus, more consoled than spending a night in this tree. We may have never had an experience like that, but David did. David's experience wasn't in a tree, but in a cave. And that's really where he wrote, or what he, he's writing Psalm 57 about. And that's what we'll see today. Now you might remember, we've been studying a lot of the Psalms where David is on the run from King Saul in the early part of his life. He's been fleeing to various places. And last week in Psalm 56, we saw David flee to Gath, which was Goliath's hometown. If you remember, he went into that town alone and afraid and just desperate for help. He had to act insane to free himself from that king. And God graciously spared his life and taught David a lot. His fear was turned to faith in God by the end of that psalm because he remembered, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
And we see he's learned that lesson today in this psalm as well. But after he went to Gath, he fled again into the wilderness. And he took shelter in a cave, a cave called the Cave of Adullam. And that's probably the cave being referenced here in the superscript. Look at the superscript with me one more time. It says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy, that's probably the tune of the psalm, a mictim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, chronologically, this seems these psalms are unfolding. So this cave is probably the cave of Adullam that we see in 1 Samuel 22. You don't have to turn there, but if you remember 1 Samuel 22, it's a very big turning point for David. He's been on the run and despairing for a long time, but this seems to be a blessing for him in many ways. It says in 1 Samuel 22, his brothers and his father's house heard of it. That's his struggle and his hiding. They went there to him, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became the commander over them, And there was with him about 400 men. Now, I admit, it's probably not the men you would want. Seemed like a pretty motley crew, a pretty messed up people. But he was not alone anymore. He had 400 men to fight alongside him in battle. Now, I believe that Psalm 57 wasn't written when they were there. I believe it was written before this kind of band of brothers showed up. Because there's nothing in the psalm that indicates those people are by his side. However, this psalm is drastically different. You might have noticed that when we read it. Then Psalm 56 and then the previous psalms. David used to be desperate, afraid, alone. But we see him here hopeful, settled, steady, even bold in his prayer and bold in his praise. So what happened? What changed? He's still hiding in a cave. Well, it's just like John G. Payton in that tree. David has turned this cave into a sanctuary filled with praise, filled with prayer, because he recognizes that his true refuge isn't the cave. It's God himself. That's what this psalm is about, his refuge and our refuge. Really, I think David is teaching us that Christ, Christ is our refuge and strength, our very present help in times of trouble. Now, that verse comes from Psalm 46, 1, but it sums up perfectly what David is trying to teach us here. Christ is our refuge. Christ is our strength. Now, I want us to see that in the psalm as it unfolds in two points this morning. So first, we'll look at David's confident prayer in verses 1 through 5, and then we'll look at David's steadfast praise in verses 6 through 11. And you'll see as we go through, it's really easy to divide this up because there's a refrain in verse 5 and verse 11 that's so important as we go through. So let's look at verse 1 as we see David's confident prayer once again. David says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. So just like previous psalms before, David calling out to God for mercy, calling out to God for help, it almost seems like he's anxious. Like he's distressed again because he calls out twice for mercy. But there's a difference here in the psalm. In previous psalms, David would call out for mercy and run right to his problems as if they were the only thing on his mind. Look at Psalm 56 verse 1. I want you to see the contrast here. Psalm 56, verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, O God. The same cries in Psalm 57. And then he says, For man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. You see how fast he got to his trouble? Be merciful to me, God. These people are all over me. 
They're oppressing me. They're trampling on me. Get them off. But now in Psalm 57, the mood has completely changed. He doesn't rush to his problems. He goes right to God. Verse 1, Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. What a contrast this is from previous psalms and even some that follow it as well. It appears David has learned his lesson from Psalm 56. You remember that repeated refrain in verse 4 and verse 11 from last week. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man, what can flesh do to me? So with David's fear gone and now his trust, his confidence in the Lord, he continues to pray with confidence as he describes his refuge in the middle of verse 1. He says, In the shadow of your wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Now you may know it or not, but David really loves this wing imagery. He mentions these wing-type coverings in five different psalms in the Psalter, in Psalm 17 and 36 and 61 and 63 and even 91. I encourage you to go see that later. But it struck me this week as we were studying, I bet this imagery feels kind of weird to us. It feels very strange because when we think of wings, we don't think of something strong or comforting or protective. I mean, for us, be honest, we think of wings as delicious, <laughs> right? As good food for lunch or maybe just a snack, but even then they're tiny, right? They're tiny. They're not big enough to even fill us up. How could they ever be protective? I've never heard anybody use wings in a protective, a strong sense. If I went up to Jordan and said, hey, brother, you've been working out. Look at those chicken wings right there. He's not going to take that as a compliment, Guns, cannons, maybe, but not wings. They're just flimsy. They're weak. So how does David find comfort from wings? Well, the picture here is probably, again, something we're not familiar with. It's the picture of a mother hen covering her chicks when there's danger. If you didn't grow up on a farm, maybe you saw something like this on TV. But when there's a threat for these baby chickens, the mother will instinctively cover the chickens. The chicks run under her wings so they won't be snatched by the hawk or some other danger. They just do that automatically. It's pretty cool to watch if you've ever seen it. David's drawing from that picture here and essentially saying, I'm like those little baby chickens running to my mother, but I'm running to God. Running to God for protection and comfort. And I know it's not the power of the wings or the the strength of the wings. It's the strength of God that protects me. Better than the mother hen. Better than even this cave. And I know that because of who my God is. Look at verse 2. David says, I cry out to God most high. It's a beautiful name for God, a name we're probably a little bit familiar with. It's used a number of times in the Psalms, but it's used significantly in Genesis 14. I know it hasn't been that long since we've been in Genesis 14, but you might remember in Genesis 14, Abraham, or Abram at that time, meets Melchizedek. And that great scene with him coming back from war and this victory, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. If you remember, Melchizedek told Abraham, he said, blessed be Abram by God most high. There's the name. And then he says, creator of heaven and earth, who delivered your enemies into your hand. See, David is going back to this point because this name from the beginning, 
draws from this picture of God's power and God's authority. This is the God who is above all and sustains all, but still comes down to rescue his people from below. This is the God most high that condescends to us. And so David is saying, look, that is my God. My God has more power and authority and and dignity than any king that could hunt me down. Than Saul or, or any God for that matter. No one outranks my God. No one is before him. No one will ever be above him. He is transcendent and glorious. He rules over all creation as king. And he has the power to save me. And that's exactly what he promises to do. Look at verse 2 again. I cry out to God most high, the God who is able to save me, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. The God that will keep his word and will save me from this cave, this mess. This really is David's version of Romans 8.28. We know it well, I'm sure. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is David saying, look, this is where my confidence lies. It's in God most high. I have no reason to doubt No reason to despair, even though I'm by myself, alone in a cave with nothing. It doesn't matter who's outside the cave or who assaults me because God, most high, is for me. That's his hope. And how exactly will God work for David? Look at verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. These beautiful words, again, that describe God all throughout the scripture, his covenant-keeping love, his faithful love, he's faithful and true. Now, I have no doubt David is praying here for deliverance from Saul. He's praying to get out of the cave, for one thing. He's praying to be vindicated before all of God's people as he's one day made king. And that would certainly be a picture, a fulfillment of God's covenant, steadfast love. It would be a picture of God's faithfulness because it would prove that God's words are true. But when you read this verse and you understand it, don't you get the sense David is praying for a greater deliverance here? Doesn't it seem like he's praying for something bigger? I love Christopher Ash. He's a pastor, commentator, one of my favorite commentators on the Psalms. I love what he says in multiple places about this Psalm, but particularly this verse, he says, David's prayers are too big. I love that picture. David's prayers are too big for his circumstances. They seem like they're way more than just rescue from a cave or rescue from a king somewhere in the Middle East. It's almost as if in this verse, David is personifying God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Like they're messengers that come down from on high and deliver David from this pit, fulfilling God's promises, wiping out his enemies forever. It's almost like they embody steadfast love and faithfulness. I hope you can already see where I'm going with this. Because it's really interesting to me that in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, these words here for steadfast love and faithfulness are translated into the Greek words for grace and truth. The King James reflects that. They translate it as mercy and truth. 
But I think John, the Apostle John, ties this all together. He paints the picture of us of what David was looking forward to. The greater prayer, the greater deliverance in John 1.14. Listen to his words. He said, And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. Came down from heaven, in other words. Just like David prayed. And we have seen his glory, which David will pray in a couple minutes. Glory as the only son from the Father. Listen, full of grace. And truth. David was praying for a far greater deliverance after all. He cried out to mercy not just to get out of the cave, not just to be freed from Saul. He cried out for mercy because he's a sinner, because he needs a refuge from the wrath to come, just like you and just like me. He cried out to the only God he knows that can help him because he is God most high. He's the God who promised to send the seed of the woman to crush his enemies forever. Not just Saul, but Satan, sin, and death. David knew his God. He knew grace and truth. He was looking to Christ in faith, but David did not know the fullness of grace and truth presented to us in Christ. He did know God truly. But he didn't know how all the pieces would fit together. He didn't know completely that it would actually be God most high that would come himself to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us, to live perfectly in our place as only he could because we have failed to keep God's law. He didn't know that the Messiah, his Lord, would come to manifest perfectly grace and truth by fulfilling all of God's promises, by speaking the word of God, not just on behalf of God, but as God. And David didn't even know, I'll bet, that the Messiah would be a lot like him. In some ways he did, I'm sure. But Jesus would come as the anointed king as well, rejected by his people, living in exile, And he too would have a cave-like experience in a way. He would go into the tomb and he would rise from this cave to deliver his people from all of their sin. He would become the refuge for all of God's people upon his resurrection. You see, what David is doing here is he's looking to Jesus in faith. He's saying, Jesus is my refuge and my strength, my help in times of trouble. And it's no wonder then that he continues to pray with confidence, even though his life seems to be a mess. Look at verse 4. He says, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery or ferocious beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Now, you you can't really tell this in English because we kind of smooth out the translation a little bit. But the Hebrew here is very choppy. It's very erratic. If you read it just literally, it would sound like this. My soul midst lionesses, I lay fiery beasts, sons of man, teeth, spears, arrows, tongues, swords, sharp. It's a mess, it sounds like. Sounds like a heartbeat, just beating. He's surrounded by such chaos, such evil and dangerous enemies hunting him down who are using their tongues, their teeth as weapons to slander David, to destroy not only himself, but his reputation and all that he stands for, to turn all of his friends and loved ones against him. But remember, even in the midst of all this, his refuge is Christ. 
And so he prays, verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. You see, David's praying, Lord, whatever happens to me, vindicate your name, not mine. Lord, I want you to be glorified as my refuge and my strength. You need to be seen as my great deliverer. I want the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God most high to be declared among the people of God. I can disappear, but Lord, may you be glorified. Brothers and sisters, is this our prayer? Especially in times of trouble, when pressure is high, the stress is out of control, and our instincts, our heart just wants to run and hide. We just want to run and just disappear. Where do you run in moments like that? Where's your hope? Is your refuge God most high? Or kids, is your refuge your parents? Your friends? Is your refuge some place on the internet that can tell you what you already believe? Or adults, is your refuge distractions? Work? Social media? Entertainment? Substances? Is it people as well? Or is it sinful habits that come back every time the stress gets turned up? Brothers and sisters, our only, only refuge from sin and pain and the depravity and the wickedness of this world is the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. There's nowhere else to run. And in our time of trouble, that's the time to take refuge, not when our troubles are over. So when the distress comes, when the bad news comes, and it's just overwhelming, and if it hasn't come, by the way, it will. It will come in this broken and fallen world. In those moments, cry out to God. Cry out to God in prayer for mercy. Remember, God most high is your refuge and your strength. And all of his purposes are being fulfilled for you. And then respond with prayer that God would be glorified, not after your suffering, but through your suffering and in your suffering. In that very moment, let God be glorified in your life. Well, David doesn't just pray when the trials come. He also praises God, and we can learn a lot from that as well. So let's move from confident prayer to David's steadfast praise in verse 6. And you'll see right here, he picks up right where he left off. His confidence hasn't gone away, even though his circumstances are still terrible. Listen to why he's so confident in verse 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but... They have fallen into it themselves. You see, David knows that even when his life is a mess, even when trials are terrible, he doesn't have to be anxious. He doesn't have to stress because God is just. His enemies will get what they deserve. The trap that they set, God will spring on themselves. And you know what? This actually happens in David's life a number of times. This kind of perfect and poetic justice that we, we actually glory in our world, right? We have videos online of this kind of instant justice, and we love it. But David gets this picture in his life in another cave, actually. Later on in his life, he was on the run from Saul again in 1 Samuel 24, and he was in the cave of En You might remember this picture, especially if you know the stories of David. 
And this time Saul, he has David cornered. There's thousands of troops hunting for David in this cave. 3,000 men. David has just a few and he's hiding and they're searching through the cave. And then Saul takes a break, stumbles into a cave to relieve himself. And lo and behold, it's the cave where David and his men are hiding. God has just delivered Saul right up to David. The trap that Saul set has been sprung on Saul. But God prevented David from harming his anointed king. Even though Saul deserved it, David cut off a piece of the robe. Do you remember this? And then when Saul left the cave, he went out of the cave and showed it to Saul. And Saul wept. He wept and said, you, David, are more righteous than I. You will surely be king. It's in that moment, the trap that Saul set was sprung on himself. And David is vindicated. Brothers and sisters, God does this for us as well. In our lives, he's done it repeatedly in David's. But the wicked people that fight against us, that slander us, that seek to tear us down, the wickedness in this world will get what they deserve. It's like their their wickedness will be like a boomerang coming back upon them when God turns them over to their sin. They will not get away with it. This justice may not happen in our lifetime, by the way. That's important. It won't automatically come like it did for David in his lifetime. If you remember Asaph in Psalm 73, this wonderful psalm. You remember this one where he's frustrated. He's lamenting. He's going to God because the wicked seem to have everything fine. They're comfortable. They're fat. They just love their wickedness, and they have no problems at all. They're getting away with everything. And do you remember what changed it for Asaph? He went into the sanctuary of God. He went to church. He behold the glory of God. And do you remember his conclusion about the wicked? Essentially, oh yeah, they're going to hell. They will get what they deserve. They won't get away with this. Wickedness will never be worth it. God is just. And that's what David is remembering in this moment. And so he responds then with surety and steadfast praise. Look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Oh, did you notice the double plea for mercy? His double prayer in verse 1 has now turned to a double affirmation of a steadfast heart. Lord, I am immovable. I'm trusting in you. This is where his confidence in prayer, his confidence in God has led him. And now he's singing. I will sing sing and make melody to you. And please notice, he's still in the cave. Saul wasn't defeated. Nothing changed for David. The only thing that changes, he said, I'm going to turn this dark hole that I'm in into a sanctuary. I'm going to sing to my God right here, right now. This reminds me so much of Paul and Silas in prison. You remember that story in Acts 16? Where they are arrested for preaching the gospel. They're beaten, probably awaiting their death in a prison cell in the middle of the night so they can't sleep. And so what do they do? They begin to pray. I just imagine the scene as if one of them turns to the other and says, I bet the acoustics are good in here. And they start singing. They turn that jail cell into a sanctuary filled with praise, worship, and prayer. That's what David's doing right here. Listen to his words in verse 8. Awake, my glory. 
That's David saying, all of me, my whole being, everything that's in me capable of praise, wake up. This is the time to praise God. Awake, O harp and lyre. David doesn't have a harp and a lyre. He has no instruments. He has a sword and little food. Nothing in this cave. But it's almost as if he's reverting back to when he was in the presence of Saul leading music. He's becoming the choir master here, calling everyone and everything around him to worship God. As Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's what David's asking for here. Everyone join me in this steadfast praise to God. And then this beautiful statement at the end of verse eight, he says, I will awake the dawn. Now, you know, that's not how that usually works. Usually it's the dawn that awakens us. That's how it usually works. How can David saying his praise, his worship, his singing to God will awaken the dawn? Well, it could be because David was awake all night in the cave praying. We see verses 1 through 5, his confidence in prayer. That may have been his prayers all night. I'm sure some of us have been there, haven't we? Or it could be. That David believes that his praise, and even ours by extension, is what really brings the sunrise. Now, hang with me. I don't mean this literally. Don't when we pray and then the sun just pops up. We don't have that sovereignty, right? That's God's alone. But the idea here is our praise often is what God uses to bring us out of darkness. Our prayer, our praise, they're means of deliverance. They're not just a response to deliverance. We do praise God when we are delivered, but oftentimes God will deliver us through that praise in the middle of the trials. We sing praises to God, not just to respond, but to fight, to find faith in God and trust him. And God often uses those prayers to deliver and care for his people, just like he did with Paul and Silas, right? They're singing praises in that jail cell, and they just fly open. And the Philippian jailer is saved. What a glorious story. It reminds me of another story in 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, of another king. One of my favorite stories, but it's, nobody knows about it because it's in Chronicles, apparently. So this king, King Jehoshaphat, he's a godly king. He's in trouble just like David, but he's not in a cave. He's backed into a corner because he has enemies, three armies, three evil nations descending on him and the people of God ready to destroy him. And he's done. He's out of resources. He's out of ideas. He has nothing left to save himself and the people of God. So what does he do in that moment? He turns to God in prayer. And not just desperate prayer, but confident prayer. Listen to what he says, Second Chronicles 20. You don't have to turn there. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat says, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And listen, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Have you ever been there? Or I, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what my next step of faith looks like. I don't know where I go from here or what will happen. But I know, I know you are my refuge. You are my strength, so my eyes are on you. And then Jehoshaphat does something even crazier. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21, he says, He appointed those 
who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. That's the Levites, the, the choir of Israel. He appoints them to go before the army in battle and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Jehoshaphat said, we're going to die and I want the choir to lead us into battle. That's what it looks like here. The choir's going to lead us into battle. Why? Because he wants the people to know who's really fighting their fight. He wants the people to know where their hope comes from. It comes from the Lord. He is our refuge and strength against any enemy, enemy, any foe. And God graciously saves them through their praise. And God does the same thing for us, not in extraordinary ways often. He doesn't bring fire from the sky. He doesn't open jail cells for all of us on a daily basis, but ordinary, simple means of grace. God uses prayer and praise. He uses what we're doing right now to help us, provide for us, protect us, lift us from the darkness. And he uses what we use in our evening service, getting together and praying together. Oh, brothers and sisters, I know so many of us probably are intimidated by settings like that. We've been in prayer groups where it's awkward and don't know what to say, if you should pray or who should pray. Or the, it's, it's weird sometimes, right? It can be difficult and a lot of us probably don't even come to the evening service because we do those types of things. But honestly, that doesn't matter if we like it or not. We need it. We need to pray together. We're commanded to pray together. And God has faithfully promised to work through that prayer, through that praise, to provide everything we need. To sanctify us. To make us more like Jesus. To lift us out of darkness as we behold our refuge in Christ. I know we want our, our Sunday afternoons for fun, for family time, for rest. Brothers and sisters, we don't need rest from God. We need rest in God. We need to come into the sanctuary with God's people. We desperately need more than anything else to pray and praise our Lord together. That's how we persevere in faith. And that's how God uses those means to sustain us. Now, David's steadfast love doesn't stay in this cave. It quickly goes from the vertical praise of God to the horizontal, to what things are going to happen after this cave. His steadfast praise continues, but in proclamation to the nations. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations for your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. There's no end to your steadfast love, your faithfulness, Lord. The same words used in verse three, he brings them back here at the end. David wants all the nations to know the God of grace and truth. David, in a sense here, is inviting the whole world into his cave. I wish everyone could join me and find their refuge, not in this cave, but in Christ. That's exactly what John G. Payton said. I wish everyone could spend a night in that tree with me to find their confidence, their trust in the Lord as I did. And David's so confident, because nothing's changed, by the way. He's so confident that he will get out. He will proclaim one day that he repeats his own prayer in verse 5. Look at verse 11. Be exalted, O God. 
above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I hope you see once again, this prayer is too big for David's life. David did get out of the cave. David did become king at one point. He did call all of God's people to worship God and teach them to trust God as their refuge, but David never got to the nations. David barely got out of the promised land and some of his you know, battles, he didn't really get out of the Middle East ever. How is this fulfilled then? How is his prayer, his praise extending to the nations actually accomplished? Well, it's accomplished in three ways. First, through what we're reading right now. We have David's words here. This psalm and many others. God's people have learned for centuries now from David's words, from David's life. We are joining in David's praise today of his sovereign Lord and persevering in faith as David did. And God has graciously preserved his words so that David can proclaim God's praise to the ends of the nation, to the ends of the world. But it's not just David that it's fulfilled in, in these psalms. It's also filled even greater in the greater anointed king, in Christ our Lord. Paul explains this to us in Romans 15. Listen to what he says. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And listen, in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God, what David prayed for, for his mercy. It's almost quoting from Psalm 57 there. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. See, the question is here, who's the I praising God to the nations? Well, he's quoting from Psalm 18, Psalm a lot like Psalm 57, but in context here, he's using David's words as the words of Christ. This is Christ saying, I will praise you among the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what happens every time we come into worship God. Christ is the worship leader in the service. Christ is the one that greets us as we come in. Christ is the one that speaks through his words, that orders us, orders our worship, leads us into the presence of God. It's Christ's words that are ringing in our ears as the benediction as we leave the service. See, it's not Jordan or myself or Jason or Chad that you're ultimately hearing from. Christ is speaking here through us, through his word, when we're aligned to his word. And in this way, the glory of God is spread to the nations as the churches gather in their own cave-like settings, in corporate worship, their refuge settings all over the world, and praise our God. You know what? There's one more way this is fulfilled. It's fulfilled in the Psalms. It's fulfilled in Christ. It's also fulfilled in us. It's also fulfilled in Christ's church. Because we now have the privilege of those sinners who have been brought out of darkness into the light. Not just to praise God like David or to praise God with David, but to praise God on David's behalf and on Christ's behalf. We now are the mouthpiece of God 
declaring his gospel, his praise to the ends of the earth. We're the ones now to sing praise in the midst of terrible suffering and pain, to go out to the nations and to suffer great things, to show the world that our God is faithful and true, that his steadfast love endures forever so that the whole world will see that Christ is our only refuge. He's the only refuge there ever is and will be. He's the only hope. And we have the privilege of proclaiming that good news to the ends of the earth. Let me quote Christopher Ashe one more time. He says, It is by the missionary lips of God's worldwide church that the Lord Jesus, the anointed king, makes the Father known all over the world. We've been blessed to see so much of that happen through this church, but we need to pray even more and more for boldness that that happens here in this town and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray that God would fulfill this in us. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you and rejoice that even though you are God most high, transcendent and glorious beyond all creation, you still condescend to work perfectly in our life for your glory and our good. Father, help us to run to you as our refuge. Help us to find peace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may that peace that we find, no matter where we find it, Lord, may that peace cause us to sing and to pray with confidence, to rejoice and to boldly proclaim your gospel wherever we can. Father, use us to answer this incredible prayer so that you may be glorified among all the nations. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.